Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A true story comes from Oklahoma of a young minister who went to a little church in the hopes of reviving the ministry of it. He had great hopes for the future of this church. He believed that God would rebuild it and it could turn around. And week after week, this guy labored and did everything he could, but the people always made excuses. Everything else in life seemed more important than walking with Christ by faith and being a part of life in the church, a part of the fellowship of the church. So finally, this pastor, he had one last idea. He announced in the local news that the church had died. And on that Sunday afternoon, there'd be a funeral service at the church itself for anyone who wished to come. So for the first time in years, this church was packed. It was just absolutely packed, standing room only. And it surprised them to see a casket down front. I mean, how do you have a casket if it's a church that had died? It was smothered with flowers. And the pastor told the people that as soon as he was done with the eulogy, that the people could come pass by and view the remains. And this got the people curious. They actually started paying attention. They wanted to know what was happening. They wanted to see what was in the casket. And one by one, as the people walked by, they looked in and walked out the door, feeling their own shame and their own guilt, because inside the casket, you know, he had placed a large mirror. And as they walked by, they stood face to face with the reality that they were the cause of the death of this church. There's some strong words before us this morning. And I have become convinced that many Christians have no idea how much their apathy towards Jesus Christ weakens the entire church. The idea of being a dead church is taught in the word of God, but it's not what you might think. James 2, grossly misunderstood today. It tells us that faith without works is dead, and it just simply means faith without works is useless. And to the church at Sardis, they were told in Revelation 3.1, notice how he starts, he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. They were not spiritually dead. They had new life in Jesus Christ, but their works were useless. So now we come to the last of these seven messages to these seven churches. And I want you to notice with me in our text that the message is pretty much the same. We start with verse 14 of Revelation 3, where it says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. These are not words that you want to hear. You will misunderstand our text if you think that the subject is about eternal life or eternal death. 
But if you understand, as the text says that this is about their works, it changes the subject completely. The ministry of the church is a ministry of people. A healthy church is alive because first they have been given the gift of life by faith from who? From Christ. But also because the people in it are walking by faith. And their service to Christ compels them to get involved in the lives of the body of Christ. You see, when a church dies, it withers and dies not because the building gets old. It dies because the people of the church make everything and anything more important than being an active part of the body of Jesus Christ. Laodicea was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. Ephesus was due west of Laodicea, and Hierapolis was about six miles to the north. Now, we have no record that the Apostle Paul ever made it over there to Laodicea, but we do know that he already, back then in his day, in Paul's day, had a great concern for the church at Laodicea. In Colossians 2, Paul wrote this. He said, for I want you to know, watch these words. He says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in who? Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, Laodicea was a lot like the United States of America. And what I mean by that is Laodicea was a wealthy, wealthy city. And Paul was concerned about the church there. And his hope was that they would not pursue the riches of this world, but instead the riches of the understanding of God the Father and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may know already from your own studies that the city of Laodicea had no fresh water. The small streams that were close by weren't enough to keep up with the city as it grew. So what they had to do was pipe in the water from springs that were six miles south of the city. They used these stone pipes. You can see a picture there of one of them. And huge aqueducts. It was impressive. The engineering, Hannah, was pretty impressive. They brought in these huge aqueducts to bring the water into the city. They covered most of these pipes, buried them underneath the ground. But everyone knew that this city had no water within its gates. So that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Well, if everybody knows that you have no water inside your gates, what happens? It makes you an easy target for invading armies, which would leave the people without water. And so the people of the city, they sort of adapted. They learned that they could never afford to take sides when the political winds began to change. They had the mindset, let's get along with people. Like so many today, they would seek to compromise. They would seek peace at all costs. Before we get to our text, there's three things I have to tell you. Three things that we need to consider that are important to our understanding of this message to the church. First, as I said, this was a city that was very, very, very famous for its wealth. These people were loaded. I mean rich, beyond belief. In Laodicea, gold was refined. I mean, if you're refining gold, you're rich, okay? Let's just get that out of the way. 
and it was stamped there for purity. This is where they traded gold. This is where there was a lot of important banks. And just to give you the idea of the type of money in this city, when the city was mostly destroyed in 17 AD by a major, major earthquake, and then again in 61 AD by another major earthquake, both times the Roman Empire came along and said, hey, we're going to help you rebuild your city, and we'll help you with the cost of it. In both times, the city of Laodicea said, you know what, thanks, but no thanks, we don't need the financial help, we got this covered. And not only that, we have enough money to rebuild our city both times, but we're going to come along and help the other cities nearby and rebuild as well. That's rich. That is rich. Second, this city was known for its wool. This was a high-end wool. This becomes important. And so the cloth and the carpets that came from this black wool that was there were in demand all across the Roman Empire by the people that could afford it. The wool became a symbol of their wealth and their status. Third, this city was famous for its eye salve. They had a school of medicine there that was dedicated to the false god Asclepius. And people traveled from all over the empire, all over the empire to Laodicea just to get this special eye salve. So if you had problems with your eyes, if you had any problems with your eyes, they would put this mixture of medicines that you would put on them. So here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want you to understand as we move forward. Laodicea was a city that was proud, so proud of its wealth. The people felt no need of anything beyond the material goods that they already had. And the remains of the city show that the people there had little interest in even the false gods of their day. They didn't even care about the pagan gods. That's how bad it was. This was a city that was all about business and money. They felt self-sufficient. And this, unfortunately, had a great impact on the church. Now, as I read verse 14, I think about the last messenger. At this point, probably traveling all by himself with this message to the last of these churches. The message that he carried, carried the sharpest rebuke. But yet, he had to deliver it to a church where the people had plenty of confidence in their wealth, in their money. And Christ begins, and I want you to notice this, he begins this with three titles for himself. First, he refers to himself as the Amen. Now, this is a definite claim to deity. When we use amen as the last word in a prayer, what are we saying? We are literally saying, may it be so. May it be so. But when the statement comes from God, it's a little different. This changes things. It's the final word, and it means it shall be so. It shall be so. Meaning that Jesus Christ is sovereign, and what he has promised, what he has told us already in his word, it absolutely 100% will come to pass. So this is the point of the Apostle Paul when he said this to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1. Notice this. This is a beautiful little verse. It says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. You see, Christ is telling us back in Revelation 3 that he's the amen. Christ is God's final word to men. The eternal Christ does not change. He is truth. And God really has nothing more to say to mankind beyond his statement in Jesus Christ. And then we read here in the text that Christ is the faithful and true witness. Amen pointed to his deity. But this points to his humanity. This points to the life and testimony of Christ while on earth. 
His witness was both faithful and true. This is how he describes himself to the church that was neither faithful nor true. He is the true witness of God the Father, and he died for that testimony. Christ, Jesus Christ, he can be trusted. Now the third statement from Jesus Christ here is that he is the beginning of the creation of God. And a lot of men over the years have misunderstood this verse and have insisted that Christ was the first created being. The cult known as the Jehovah's Witnesses should come to mind. And I'm sorry, that's what they are. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you by definition are belonging to a cult. The cult known as the Jehovah's Witnesses should come to mind. But the actual point of this verse is that Christ stands outside of time. Christ stands outside of time. And the wording could be rightly translated, the beginner of creation. That's what it's saying. The beginner of creation. It means that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the source of all creation. It's the same idea that is taught in Colossians 1, speaking of Christ, where it says, For by him who... Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. See, verse 14 of Revelation 3 is telling us that Jesus Christ, he is the source of all creation. It was Christ in Genesis 1-1 who created the heavens and the earth. Christ is preeminent. He has the power. He has the authority to execute his word. Now, this church at Laodicea, oh, they took great pride in their wealth, just like the church in the United States of America takes great pride in its wealth. But they had so, so little when it came to their understanding that Christ himself was a creator of all men. And he says to them in verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now, this is the most scathing rebuke that we see to one of these seven churches. It's the same message that is needed today. Let's remember from our map. Hierapolis was where? Just six miles to the north. At Hierapolis, there were natural hot springs, hot water, where people could go in and soak in that hot water. To the southeast, just 10 miles away, the pure cold water was cold. It was refreshing. It was nice. But the water at Laodicea was famous for how bad it was. Have you ever been around bad water? I went to college in a town where chunks would come out of the faucet in everyone's homes. Bad water is not a good thing. And Laodicea was that town. That's the label they had. It was bad water. Not just did you have the different temperatures, but it was brought in through these closed pipes that I showed you, through those aqueducts. And the water came lukewarm, sure it did, but it also came in bitter and chalky to the taste after traveling for miles through all that stone. It didn't even taste good. It was disgusting. And it was so bad, we know from history, that people would get nauseated just trying to drink it. They'd, they'd get nauseated, and so what would you do? You'd spit it out the very first time you tasted it. So Christ is using this very metaphor, not in reference to the salvation of the people, but what? He says specifically, their works. Cold water is refreshing. Hot water can be used to keep things clean, but lukewarm water, it serves very, very little use, very little function. 
And so with some strong words, Christ says to them in verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I want you to hear me carefully, because this, this passage has been taught so wrong so many times. Christ is not rejecting people here. That's not what's happening. Christ is saying, just as you reject water that serves no purpose, so am I rejecting the half-hearted efforts of God's people. Because works that are not based on a Christian living by faith serve no purpose. Do you hear that? Works that are not based on a Christian living by faith serve no purpose. Come to church, serve God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Not because you're trying to earn something from God. Do you hear me? See, Christ would chasten. Christ would discipline his people. He's not teaching, as some say, as many say today, that they were never really saved. And he's desperately not teaching that they will lose their salvation. This is just an anthropomorphism. Oh, that's a huge, big word, Katie Olson. That is a big word. What does that mean? Well, it just means human behavior being assigned to God in the scriptures to simply teach us something. That Jesus Christ, friends, is disgusted with the efforts of half-hearted Christians. He didn't mean he wants us to be spiritually cold. He's not saying go ahead and just be pathetic. He's not saying that. He did mean, though, that he wants us to be useful to his purpose, to his work. See, Christ is condemning half-hearted work. Christ was condemning things that we do to bring glory or attention to ourselves rather than him. Christ was condemning work that was done insincerely. Because it reflects nothing of the love that comes from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And how these Christians were living was making Jesus Christ sick. There's a very, very old story of a king who long ago always wanted to be dressed in the latest fashion. But one day, a couple of very brave men came to this city bragging about a new material that they had discovered. They said that it had special powers. And they said, if you're wise enough, if you have any sense of fashion, Dan, if you can know fashion at all, this new material would shine with beauty like you've never, ever seen before. But to the foolish, to the uneducated, to those that know nothing about fashion, the material would be completely invisible. So this prideful king, he was overjoyed by this. This was an opportunity to look good and show off his wisdom at the same time. So he put the men to work making a new set of clothes. And finally the day came. It was time for the king to put on his new outfit and parade around the entire city for everyone to see. And the entire city had heard about this special fabric and wanted to see it for themselves if they were wise enough to be able to see it. And in the king's chambers, these Proudful, arrogant men came in pretending to dress the king as if the fabric was really there. They pretended to double-check their measurements and straighten out his clothing. But deep down inside, everyone, including the king, they knew. They knew that there was really nothing there. And so the king, he stood there completely, entirely uncovered. But everyone pretended to admire his new outfit. 
So here you have this king, naked as a blue jay, walking around the city, but nobody dared to laugh. Nobody dared to say a word. And as he paraded through the city center, everyone pretended to see the beautiful new outfit because no one wanted to admit that they were ignorant, that they were foolish, or that they were the ones lacking in good taste. But one little boy, leave it up to kids to speak the truth, right? One little boy turned to his mom and said, Mommy, the king's not wearing any clothes. And everyone quickly hushed him up and pretended to believe because they did not want to admit that they were lacking anything. That old story is a fitting description, a very fitting description of how Christians are living, especially when they come to church. Pretending that their own nakedness before God is not there. But God sees it all, doesn't he? God sees everything. You know, one of the things I get tired of as a pastor, oh, there's a list. Ask Angie. It's true. As a pastor, I get tired of watching Christians try to hide their sin or look important and respectable on Sunday mornings. Just twice in the last two weeks, I had people, when they found out that I was a pastor, they took their beer and they tried to hide it behind their backs. Oh, I can't see it. Quit worrying about me. Quit worrying about what other people think and start thinking about your Savior. Do you hear that? He knows the counsels of the heart. He knows our motivations, whether it is faith, trust in him that moves us, or is it our own pride, is it our own greed, our own selfishness, our own arrogance, our desire to look good in front of other people. Hebrews 4, it teaches us, Read this with me. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful. You know the first part and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Read the next part. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we Christians must give an account See, the church at Laodicea was rebuked by the Lord Jesus Christ because they were pretending that everything was just fine in their lives. They thought they were successful. They thought they were rich. They thought that they lacked nothing. And their self-sufficiency kept them from relying upon the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so look at what Christ tells them, starting in verse 17. He says, because you say, I'm rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And as many as I love, key phrase, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. See, the people of Laodicea were so wealthy that they thought God was unnecessary. But before Christ, they were naked. They were bankrupt. They were poor in how they were living. Christ was speaking to them in wording that they understood. 
The banks of their city were famous. The people took a lot of pride in in these banks, and their currency was gold. If you were a businessman in Laodicea, it was your goal. It was your goal to be able to say that you had gold in the bank. Because if you did, if you honestly had gold in the bank, then you could tell other people with great arrogance and pride, I'm rich. Notice the next statement from the people in that day. I've become wealthier, as the King James records, increased with goods. Again, the clothing made out of the expensive black wool was a symbol of status. Wearing this meant that you were rich. It it was the gap. It was J. Crew of the day. It was the fashion. The arrogance of the people is best seen with this statement. We have need of nothing You see, these people are so confident and arrogant in themselves and their own ability to provide for themselves. And you've seen this type of Christian today, always putting on a show in how they dress, always putting on a show about what they bought, even though they put it on credit cards, and then always putting on a show in how they come across to others. And to be honest, I tend to think that what happened at Laodicea was that people carried this idea of being wealthy, this idea of being self-sufficient. They carried this over to how they dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the root issue was pride. It blinded them to not seeing their own condition before God. And the people thought that because they had money, because they had stuff, because they had chased the world and gotten it, that somehow this made them stronger in their identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. But friends, I don't care about your money. And I don't care if you think you have it all because Jesus Christ does not care. This is the same stench of arrogance from Laodicea. It's staking up the church of Jesus Christ. And this is why you go throughout the valley, you go throughout Anchorage, rich men are made leaders in some churches, and that's just wrong. The lesson is, if you have great physical wealth, it does nothing. It does absolutely nothing to help you with your walk with the Lord. You're chasing the wrong thing and showing how little you know the scriptures. If you've made a big name for yourself, if you've made a lot of money, it doesn't mean that you are a success when it comes to walking with Jesus Christ. And so this is why he says in the second part of verse 17, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Christ's opinion, I believe, of the church in the United States, but of arrogant Christians not living out their faith. You see, you may think that you're fooling people when you come to church, but just like our naked king, the joke, the joke is on you. See, Christ knows your condition, and I want you to hear me very carefully when I talk about condition and position, because they're different. Christ knows your condition, that you're wretched, that you're miserable, that you're poor. Now, the word used here describes someone that is absolutely destitute, still describing not their position in Jesus Christ, but their condition. And Christ labels them as blind in a city that was famous for its eye salve. Christ told the church that perfect vision on earth means nothing when it comes to seeing the things of God, that they have made their fancy clothes out of that black wool, but they were naked, naked before God. They favored material wealth over the riches that are found in Jesus Christ. So what's the solution? I'm getting there. (laughs) I'm getting there. I make no apologies. This is going to be a longer message. If you got to go, it is what it is. Here's the solution. Christ begins in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. 
This is where you need to stop in the text and do a little homework and put this back into the historical context of the first century. This was a city that was all about business, right? Buying and selling, buying and selling. But what they needed to be focused on was the Lord Jesus Christ. His counsel would not make them wealthy in Laodicea. What Jesus Christ was telling them would not make them rich and famous, but it would enable them to lay up treasure where? In heaven. This church needed to follow the counsel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ points out that this church needed three things. And I want you to notice that these things can only come from Christ. They can only come from Christ. He was using their wording. And by telling them that you buy from me, he is in effect saying your feeling of self-sufficiency is totally absurd. I'm the creator. I'm God. Your feeling of self-sufficiency is absurd because every person, whether they acknowledge Jesus Christ or not, is dependent upon the creator. This is wording that materialistic people can understand. They needed to stop depending on their riches and buy gold refined in the fire. This means, what does this mean? Here's the key phrase. This means they are to live by faith in God. And the idea of the gold refined in the fire stresses the purity and the value of this gold. Because of the heavy focus on gold in Laodicea, everyone knew that the gold that had been through the fire was absolutely pure. It didn't corrode. It was pure. Refined gold was worth a lot more. So Christ is using a metaphor now. And the reference is to that which would glorify God. The gold he is talking about is the gold refined through fire. They needed a pure faith. That's what he's saying. They needed a pure faith. A faith that was capable of withstanding the fire and trials of the world. It couldn't be bought because these things come to us from Christ by his grace. Their focus should have been on their spiritual riches in Jesus Christ instead of on the garments of, made of black wool. Their focus should have been on white garments. White garments are defined for us in Revelation 19, verse 8, aren't they? As the righteous acts of the saints, so that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And the eye salve that he mentions here, that they needed, wasn't for physical sight. They needed the clarity that can only come through the word of God that allows us to see life as God himself sees it. So notice the clear reference to believers in verse 19. And this is one of the reasons we know he's talking to believers. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This is God's love for his people. Hebrews 12.10 tells us that God's discipline in the life of a believer is for their own good. Proverbs 3.12, much the same. It says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. He chastens because he loves. So humble yourselves, Christians, and repent of your sins. Turn back to living in fellowship with the Creator. Stop trying to impress people. Stop trying to impress people and start living for the Savior who already bought you. Let His grace and His love transform your life. Trust His promises. Trust His goodness. Trust that eternal plan that the Creator of all men has for you. If you're still coming to church because you're trying to earn favor with God, you have little understanding of what God has done for you. I am sorry. And you desperately need something. You desperately need to get into the word of God, asking the spirit of God to help you understand it so that you can clearly see the things of Christ. You know, the problem of man is that we always trust ourselves. 
We always trust ourselves. The solution of Jesus Christ is to trust him. Christ was calling these people to repentance, and even this is love. These Christians needed to repent of this attitude of being self-sufficient and lean upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You know, over in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul wrote this. He said, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And remember that 1 Corinthians, like the rest of the New Testament, was written to believers, not to the lost. Meaning that as believers in Christ, we have a choice. If we will judge ourselves, if we'll put away our own sin, God will not be forced to bring the chastening judgment upon us. But if we refuse to do this, Scripture is absolutely clear that God will chasten. So verse 20, back in Revelation, here we go. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. When you see the word behold in Scripture, you better pay attention. The idea here in the text is of Jesus Christ saying, I have taken my position and I am standing. Now, you need to, and I mean need to, put verse 20 into context. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with Christ standing at the door of your heart to see if just maybe, if maybe possibly you would let him beg you enough to receive Christ. Please don't use this verse this way. Christ is addressing his people. He's addressing Christians. And to say otherwise is to corrupt the text. It is to distort the gospel of grace and to bring your meaning into God's words. The believers in this church had strayed from God. They had shut the door on him. They had shut Jesus Christ out of their lives. And the Savior was seeking to call them back, looking to be close to them again. The Savior was wanting that fellowship. See, opening the door, it's just simply a figure of speech. We use figures of speech all the time. And it represents the individual response by faith of a believer in Christ. And so the words knock here, it speaks of an action that is continually ongoing. Christ is seen as continuing to knock, 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 knock. This is the motivation for living out verse 19, for repenting and becoming zealous for the Lord, because Christ presents himself as right on the verge of entering in. The subject all along has been the lukewarm Christians, the indifferent Christians. And the Lord urged them to open the door and invite Jesus in for fellowship. See, living in fellowship with Christ, you need to understand this if you want to understand the New Testament. Living in fellowship with Christ is a New Testament truth for the child of God. The Apostle John said this as, as much over in 1 John chapter 3. Let's read it. It says, that which we have seen and we heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Okay, that's good. We're with the apostles. And who else? And truly our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. It's a very purpose statement of 1 John. You want to sum up 1 John? There it is. It's right there. He wanted the Christians to learn to live in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, let's put this together. Once you are drawn into the family of God, once God draws you into the family of God, there is nothing you can do to leave the family of God. Because your condition in Christ, as part of his family, is eternally secure. But your sin as a child of God can absolutely put you out of fellowship with God. 
when these three right here in the front row, perfect targets, when my kids go against my will, oh, ask them, it breaks our fellowship. It breaks our fellowship something fierce. But we don't kick them out of the family, at least not yet. We have not. But when they turn back, when they start to agree with their father and how wise their father actually is, when they change their minds about their actions, what does it do? Restores fellowship in the family. When you see in the New Testament the idea, hear this, please. I'm begging you, hear this. When you see in the New Testament the idea of telling Christians to repent like we did in verse 19 of Revelation 3, it's a call to return to fellowship with our Savior. That's what it is. It's not about our position in the family of God, but about our condition. Those are totally different. It is about our condition of living out of fellowship with Him. This is the tender picture the Savior gives us in verse 20. He wants us to have fellowship with his people. It's pictured here as an intimate meal. Now that's foreign to us. We don't get why would Christ talk about fellowship as a meal? Well, we have to go back. We have to go back into the first century. We have to remember the culture, the context. The last meal of the day was a time of hospitality. Show of hands, how many people have I eaten a meal with in this church? Most of you. Most of you. We've eaten a meal together in the evening time. It's a time of companionship and fellowship. And to be assured of such a meal with the Lord is a pledge of enjoying the closest possible fellowship with him. And this is what is meant with this statement, that Christ would dine with him and he with me. And then he tells us in our last two verses, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The privilege of reigning with Jesus Christ is something that will be given to believers. This is pointing us forward to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Go back to that teaching. 1 John chapter 5, where it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, Christ is telling the church in Revelation, just as I overcame death and sin and sat down next to the Father in glory, so it is that God's people will overcome death and sit down with Christ when he rules from his Davidic throne over the entire earth. Meaning this, here it is, Christians, you should not be trying to live like a king on earth because the day is coming when we will live in perfect harmony with the king of kings. But there's a teaching wrapped up here and throughout the New Testament that the believer that is faithful to Christ now will be more than just present in the kingdom of Christ. Faithful believers will have the privilege of ruling with Christ, reigning with Christ. See, Christ, he's pounding at your door, Christian, wanting you to enjoy his love and his grace all over again. But it's only your pride and it's only your selfish desire to live for yourself as standing in the way. One of my favorite true stories that you've heard, some of you've heard me tell before, comes out of Africa, about a man named Joseph who came out of a Muslim background. One day he was walking a hot and dirty African road and he met someone who shared Jesus Christ with him. And right on the spot, 
God was drawing him. He received Jesus Christ as his Savior, and the power of the Holy Spirit gave him such joy that the very first thing that Joseph went and did was go back and tell his own village about Christ. He went door to door telling of the cross and the forgiveness of sins. He expected their faces to light up just as his had done when they were presented with this wonderful truth. He was amazed when they became violent. The men seized him and held him to the ground while the woman beat him, beat him with strands of barbed wire. They dragged him and left him alone to die out in the bush in Africa. So Joseph, Joseph revived and he was able to make it to a watering hole where he spent days there recovering from this beating. He was confused and he finally decided that he must have left something out. He must have messed up the gospel. <laughs> so what do you do? Maybe he didn't share it correctly. I was there once. So he returned to his village and he stood in the circles of the huts and he began to proclaim Jesus Christ. But again, for a second time, the men grabbed him and the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. And they dragged him out of the village unconscious again for a second time and left him to die. This was the second beating that he survived. Days later, days later, he awoke, determined to go back. But this time he was attacked before he even opened his mouth. He couldn't even get anything out of his mouth. But before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him, they were beginning to weep. And this time, he awoke in his own bed because the ones who had beaten him were now trying to save his life because this village, this entire village in Africa had come to know Jesus Christ. I like this story. And the reason why I like this story so much is because it reminds me of how complacent we have become. See, I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I think if we're honest with the scriptures, we already know that the Spirit of God and the Word of God teach us exactly how it is that we're supposed to be living. We already know. We know more than enough. We're supposed to be passionate about Christ, passionate about the gospel, just like Joseph, passionate about the grace, the truth, and the love of Christ for us. But many of us, so many, have become indifferent, lukewarm, and complacent in our faith. The weeds of life have choked out the fruit because you put other things before Christ football season. I love football. Work, your work, summer in Alaska, that can become weeds and choke things out, can it? You name it. But Jesus Christ wants us to put him first, to put his love, his fellowship first, which should spill over to how we love one another. See, loving one another doesn't mean just saying nice things to each other. It means getting involved in the life of the body, serving and sharing the gospel. Let me ask you this, Christian. When was the last time that you shared the hope of Christ with a lost person? When was the last time? Christ wants us to come together to worship him in both spirit and in truth and to be a church that helps people to grow in their faith. Christians at Laodicea believed in their own self-sufficiency. Their pride and their love of self stood in the way of their relationship with Christ. And their works, they disgusted God. And yet, Jesus still offered them a path, a path back to fellowship with him, his love, and his grace. And it's the same path that he offers us. Listen to the words of Psalm 86, verse 15, and we'll close with this. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, 
long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. So humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before the Creator. Stay true to your identity and your position in Jesus Christ. Stay true to His Word. Stay true to His name. Putting Him first in everything. Living in fellowship always with our God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.